Hello, listeners. You know, we need to have a name for people who listen to the Circuit Break podcast. The Breakers. Now, I think actually a, a sci-fi book series uses Breakers. So we probably can't use that. Anyways, we have an announcement. We are finally running a new design contest. It's been forever. We're finally running a new one. It's electric design contest on our community forums. The theme is food devices. Yes, food. Go to form.macfad.com to find out more information about the contest and how to enter. For prizes, there is over $5,000 in cash, free prototyping services through MacFab, and the most important thing, trophies to show that your design was the best one to be entered into this contest. There will be a link in the show notes where you can find more information about the contest and how to enter. Seriously, we need to find out a name for people who listen to this podcast. Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and Goliath and the IoT. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 416. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we're happy to welcome developer relations lead at Goliath, Chris Gamble, to the show. And electrical engineer. Can I say that too? You guys say electrical engineer. (laughs) And electrical engineer. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) Chris focuses on hardware as being an electrical engineer at Goliath, which is a software company. And he tries to imagine the problems that hardware engineers might run into so they can be addressed before they become problems. Oh, man, I wish that was my job. (laughs) <laughs> thanks so much for coming on chris how's it going uh good good to be back i think you guys have changed the name of the show since i've been here last yeah we, we changed it from just the back of my- mep is dead long live circuit break yeah long live circuit break <laughs> you might have seen there was like a thread in our uh in our our circuit break form that's uh we should have named it what was it uh it's like circuit hour or um <laughs> Or what was the other one? Amp break? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little pormento, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe like when I'm here, it could be like briefly renamed. You know, we got to stick together. We're yeah. podcast pals. It's actually been a while, Chris, since you've been on the uh, podcast. I would say, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. This like first couple uh, months of the year, we've been getting like the band back together of like <laughs> guests, guests that have not been on the show for a long time. Uh, yeah, classic guests. Yes. I've also been doing that on the amp. I think it's just something about, you know, once you get to that level, it's like people have gone off. They've done their interesting stories. They come back. They have new things to talk about. Familiarity. It's always fun to catch up with folks. So, yeah. yeah. I feel you. So before we dig into Goliath, Chris, can you give us a little background on your engineering and what you what is like developer relations lead? That's kind of an interesting mm. uh, title yeah. as a uh, job as well. Yeah. Developer relations is basically what software companies call application engineering. And so I've referred to myself as an application engineer when I talk to hardware crowds, but we're software companies, so it's developer relations. That's fine. We actually now also have a field applications engineer because that's on someone like, so like in my mind, an application engineer is someone who's like 
developing examples kind of at the factory. Uh, Y'all have a factory at Macrofab. Uh, (laughs) And developing examples at the factory. And then a field applications person would be then going and helping someone trying to use that out in the world, in the field, to deploy that sort of thing. So as the lead, I am the person that's coming up with what ideas and and examples we should work on next. And that takes the form of, we do training. We do a lot of training around uh, Zephyr, which is a real-time operating system. We build reference designs. We build hardware using great services like Macrofab. And we basically are the first customer for all of the stuff that our software team is building, right? So there's like a cloud, there's much cloud engineers and firmware engineers. They're building things that then they expect some engineer in the world is going to go use. Well, me and my coworker, Mike, are kind of those early, early testers. <laughs> if you would have told someone 30 years ago that we would have cloud engineers, you might think there'd be like weather, uh, what, what a metro, what, uh, what is it? Meteorological. Yes. That's yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So you're primarily doing hardware things at Goliath, correct? Yes. I am the only hardware person at the company, technically. Mostly because that's all I know how to do, guys. Uh, <laughs> 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 if they, they asked me to do cloud stuff, so I'd be like, I don't, I don't know, what are, you, what are you even talking about here? But yeah, I am the hardware person building examples using hardware off the shelf, stuff I've designed. And then does a cloud engineer term make sense? I mean, like sometimes that is kind of confusing too. No, no, no. Actually, for me, it, it makes sense because that's like dealing with Cloud-based infrastructure is what sure like AWS and Azure and all those the all the Goliath, flavors, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And how's that different from just software engineer? Hmm, I think uh, kind of like a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. I think it's like that. Mm. Uh, so like in group, out group, more specialized. Yeah, it's more specialized. Usually, it's I think like cloud engineer as well. I mean, it usually depends more on the stack of like what the cloud is using, but often they have a lot of capabilities across those things. So for example, at Goliath, we use Go on our backend. So all of our cloud folks are Go focused, but then there's also things like Kubernetes and containers and alligators. I don't know. I'm just throwing out words now. The last one was a fake one. Uh, I feel like you just start to like... You'd fool me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Cockroach DB is actually a thing. I don't know if you guys knew that. (laughs) Yeah. And so... They kind of go across all of those capabilities and then, you know, tie it all together too, right? There's a lot of plumbing involved when you're hooking up databases and front-end modules and IP stacks and all, all the things that are out there. It's, it's really, the breadth required is, is quite impressive. I had to look it up, but yes, cockroach DB is a thing. I was really hoping- It is a thing. I was really hoping their tagline would have been something like the database that can't die. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't good. seem they have anything like that. Yeah. I always remember them because I think it was a DEF CON, actually. I think they had, no, that was something else. Remember that? There was someone that had like a really big cockroach badge at uh, Badge Life at some point at DEF CON. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, what was it? But it, it, it wasn't for, De- it wasn't cockroach DB, I don't think. No. I, I, I remember at DEF CON there was, so that was a while ago. Okay, so so we have a lot of software tech <laughs> words flying around here. Let's mm, jump back. Yeah. What is Goliath. Goliath, yes. Okay, so you remember how we said, I said like, there's a lot of breadth required to like do cloud engineering. Basically, Goliath kind of takes care of all that stuff for you, right? So it basically, all of the things that you might have to do, so I am the hardware engineer, I want to build a product that's IoT based, and I want to like make it connect to the internet and send data to various places. Well, I don't, personally, I have no idea how to do that, right? I, I don't know how to do any of the cloud 
functions, even, you know, I could go maybe go follow some tutorials somewhere, but keeping like a really reliable service up and going and monitoring and like understanding all the things and scaling it too, right? That's really tough stuff to do. And so that's the Goliath product. Basically, it's a it's a back end, it's a management console, it's different export capabilities to out to different services. That's like the Goliath product. But then there's also a, an entire firmware team that then makes it even easier to connect to that stuff, right? So Goliath, one of our main ways of connecting is CoAP. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. A lot of people have heard of MQTT, but CoAP is the constrained application protocol. It's kind of like a little more lightweight UDP-based thing for connecting, so basically for sending packets to the Goliath backend. But you don't have to think about any of that stuff because then Goliath also has an open source firmware SDK that allows you to now, instead of me as the hardware person having to go and figure out how to write to some cloud service out in the world, it's now literally an API call in firmware. And so then I just say like light DB write in this, uh, I guess it's just late, sorry, it's just stream write. Sorry, it's been a while since I've even looked at the SDK, uh, <laughs> but it's basically you just call an API within the firmware now at a high level and you send data to the cloud and all that stuff in between is taken and care of for you. So now me as the hardware engineer, right? Me as the the solder jockey, the the LED blinker, the, the electron junkie, uh, I don't know how to do any of that stuff, but all I have to do is do a call within real-time operating system in order to send data or get settings updates or do firmware updates over the air. So I got the big question then, Chris. Yes. So how does Goliath distinguish itself from other companies and infrastructures that are out there that are doing IoT? Well, uh, there's a lot of different ways of doing things, right? So give me an example, and I'll tell you how we're different. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was one, um, Stephen, a long time ago, You, it was your... Uh, IoT connected fermentation tilt sensor, right, right, yeah. It was, was a, it, was a, it was a tilt sensor that you drop into. Was it beer? Eli Hughes's company T Zero or someone else? Uh, no, this was uh, this was actually an open source kind of okay, cool project. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. the, I, I don't remember Ubi Dots. I think it was Ubi Dots was the name. Ubi Dots, sure, great, and, yeah, great. Uh, so. Ubidots is like a visualization platform, right? And mm -hmm. they have an amazing like front end like visualization for that. So like they have an app now, they have a website for visualizing stuff. But then they also have an MQTT broker, right? So basically that could work. Now if you wanted to have like a like a tilt sensor that's maybe ESP32 based, you could have it go and talk to the MQTT broker. But the stuff that's a little bit different with Goliath in that case is so we can actually export to Ubidots, but there's basically other things that are layered in there like firmware updates, being able to send settings down to the device then as well. So thinking about like how you would do that and process that. I'm actually not sure the MQTT capabilities on Ubidots, but I think it's, I know there is a broker there, but basically being able to send like, I want the tilt sensor to light up when I talk to it, basically setting, doing a setting on the cloud in Goliath, it would then get passed all the way down through all the different layers to the device Using again the, the different one of the differences there is co-op versus MQTT. That's kind of uh, getting into the weeds of like what is different differentiated there, and then uh, managing that across all of your devices that might be in the field. And then another good example would be like Particle. Yeah, so Particle is a great service as well. Like really, um, I've done a bunch of projects with them as well. And so Goliath does not have any. Despite me being the hardware engineer, we actually don't sell any hardware. And so the idea being that, so with Particle, you usually need to buy like one of their solder down modules or plug-in board, which are really great. But 
once you want to move outside of that, so say you wanted to cost down a module or your end, end product, or there's something that doesn't cover what you need from their hardware offering, you can't go and take the particle service, the cloud side, and actually put that onto any device. And Goliath, I, I will stop before saying any device, but because we, uh, we have so much firmware capabilities across different ecosystems, different software and firmware ecosystems, that we can go on many, many, many devices, all of which are custom as well, right? So there's no need to go on to just dev boards. You can go and customize using things like Zephyr uh, Real-Time Operating System or ESP-IDF or things like Modus Toolbox, basically all of the different target ecosystems that we, we go for. Curious if you have any use applications that you can share with us. Sure, sure. There's actually, so I mentioned earlier the... Um, the reference designs, and that is basically kind of the thing I do on a daily basis. So projects.goliath.io is my kind of my home base for all that stuff. And there's different application spaces targeted on there. So basically it's taking a common platform. All of them are using NRF 9160 from Nordic with a bunch of sensors attached to them and kind of a breakout board that I've initially built. And I could talk about the natural successor to that board, which is what I just built recently with Macrofab. Um, but basically then taking that, plugging in things like click headers, retargeting it at different applications like CAN-based applications or mm, air quality monitoring, basically being able to show that the flexibility of a platform like that and a platform like Goliath. So the hardware is really kind of, it's just, it's always the same in, in those cases, but it doesn't have to be, right? It could be retargeted at ESP32 or uh, RT1062 from NXP or different platforms that are out there. But because it's at this high level in a real-time operating system, it can retarget for any kind of custom hardware you can dream up and program. I was looking at that project blog, I guess, uh, you can call it that. And you call them follow-alongs. And mm. where it's it's really intuitive in how you go through the entire process of putting everything together and putting and yeah. kind of getting this... It's been always one of my biggest gripes when you try to get onto one of these platforms and... I think it's because, Chris, you're a hardware engineer and you're speaking the hardware engineering language. Hmm. And whereas like software developers writing how to get onto their platform, they're, they speak the software engineering side. And there's always yeah, that right, slight right. disconnect. Right, right. Yeah, I'll probably butcher this story, but Jonathan, our founder, used to talk about um, basically he had been talking to someone that was doing like certificate-based authentication to get a device, you know, verified onto a network. And it was like, it was like the size of, of the certificate was so big that it actually wouldn't fit on the microcontroller that they were targeting. And it was because like, well, of course your device is going to be able to have a certificate just like a web browser does. And it's like, well, these are embedded tiny devices. It's just, it's just like a different set of constraints that you have to be thinking about. And Goliath is embedded first, you know, thinking about, thinking about power consumption, thinking about data throughput, basically things that you're going to want to target and put out the world that aren't you know, Raspberry Pi based or other similar Linux based systems, low power constrained devices, that's going to be kind of the, the way to think about things. And you need to have not perfect knowledge of, of uh, you know, all the way down to the electron level or, you know, the, having a reg register map in your head of a microcontroller, but having that consideration there is really important, I think. And doing it from a software level where it's like, oh, everything can be everything. You know, that's kind of like where you know, we get into like layers and layers of abstraction. Everything can be everything. It's just it's just software. It's like, well, it's there's there's some there's some hardware you gotta you gotta dig into at some point. So let's back up a tiny bit. And uh you were talking about how when you're designing your device and you push it out, or I can't remember the exact command you were talking about, but you talked about the the yeah. gap between you know the cloud and then your device. There's the stuff in the middle that 
with Goliath, you don't have to worry about. But that mm-hmm. stuff in the middle is is really important. We've been talking more recently on this podcast about IoT devices and security. Yeah. So what does Goliath offer for that kind of consideration? Yeah, on the security side. Well, so you always want to make sure that your devices are talking over an encrypted channel first off, right? A lot of devices are like, well, that's just so much overhead. I'm just going to, I'll just send unencrypted traffic and what's the big deal? Who's who's even looking at this traffic? And it's like, it's easier to troubleshoot if I just can throw it on Wireshark. And so you actually can't talk to the Goliath Cloud without, without being encrypted. So kind of the bare bones, day one way of doing things is uh, pre-shared keys. So PSK ID, which is your basically username and the PSK or pre-shared key, which is like your password. And that's kind of just the bare bones. That's what that's what you're going to start with. That's the only way you can get a device to talk to Goliath. And you can basically, you know, usually uh, when I plug in a device that's going to talk to the cloud, I plug in over serial, I type in my credentials, and then off we go, right? It's able to talk once it gets a cellular connection, for example. Past that, though, then we use certificate-based authentication as well. It's a little bit more, there's more to it usually. But once you have a certificate in place, it's kind of the one of the most secure ways you can connect to the cloud because it's basically saying this device not only has gotten on, you know, it is verified to get on, is allowed to get on the network, but then at that time, then you're actually assigning it credentials from that certificate being presented. And that's about all I know about certificates because I'm a hardware person. Uh, (laughs) But it works great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, one of the, the interesting things is... What were you guys talking about with security as a reference point? Oh, um, the... Have you heard of Bosch's Drillcrypt? Oh, was that the that was the um, the like the torque guns that got that mm-hmm. got that got hacked, right? Yeah, yeah. I I just saw the headline of that though. Could, could you give me a quick recap of what happened? Yeah, so they were just using um, basically hard coded credentials and just uh, terrible security practices. Uh, like mm-hmm. like you could just SQL inject them if you were on the mm-hmm. network, that kind of stuff. Got so it. super actually really basic things, but it's back yeah. to your point where. Hardware engineers probably did all the design and who's, the firmware. Who's going to be looking at this, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah I mean, you should be it's security just audits, all that stuff. Right, exactly. Exactly, right, right, exactly. Yeah. I remember someone was, when someone was mentioning it to me, they said, well, why would you even do that in the first place? And there are like some legitimate reasons to have like instantly available torque levels. You know, like if you had like matching of what bit you're about to, or sorry, what uh, bolt you're about to torque in there. But like, you know, it's like convenience versus security type of thing. So <laughs> the example I gave in that last episode was uh, maybe if Boeing knew which, <laughs> which torque setting they were at when they were torquing up their doors. Right. They wouldn't uh, lost one over. <laughs> I can tell you from having done this last year, a lot of reliability engineering, just the mm. aeronautical and aerospace industry requiring so many different requirements and criteria that having a torque wrench that that clicks and sends up to management saying hey they actually did what they were supposed to do that's very valuable but sure the value is completely lost security is garbage right right? yes yes. yeah yeah (laughs) there's actually a really good video and and this is way off topic because we're here to talk about you chris and goliath but um (laughs) i think there's a really good video that bosch has about triumph motorcycles and uh-huh. assembling basically engines and how they use that torque wrench to basically verify that everything to that engine was done correctly on the assembly line. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go give that a watch because then you'll be, that's like, I'm like, that's the use yeah. case for it because what Stephen just said is, you know, hey, 
four bolts got torqued to this setting, five got to this setting, et cetera. And you knew, oh, and it's like, oh, there's one missing. Which right. one is it? Right. Yeah, right, I, right. There's something with like, it can also like detect, some of them, I think, can detect positioning. So mm, you can, yeah. you can know which bolts were torqued and stuff like that. So I think one thing to kind of point out from that system though, in generally, like it's like, you know, we're like laughing about this, like, oh, why, why wouldn't they think of this stuff, right? But but the thing is like when you're starting a new project, right? Like the three of us are probably on the bench, troubleshooting, you're, you know, trying stuff, hacking at stuff, whatever, whatever, whatever. But like these micro decisions at the beginning of a project, they propagate like crazy, right? Like they basically become architectural decisions, which is insane, right? I mean, like just thinking about, how a tiny little requirement that like, a, you know, a former consulting client of mine made an offhanded comment. And now that is completely defined the product and all the troubleshooting that we have to do around it. It's like, that's just how it works. That's just how, that's just engineering in a nutshell. And so one thing I always talk about is like, you can use just about any platform to prototype to start with. But like, if you pick a good platform like Goliath at the beginning and, and take that all the way through, you're going to really benefit from all of the things that we're thinking about, right? So we're, you know, like, we're making it easier for you, but we're also thinking about these things. We're thinking about your production stuff 18 months before you're going to production. And like, that's really worth considering because most people don't think about that stuff. And when you, when you hit it, it's like a brick wall. You're just running smack into it with, you know, like no hands, nose to brick, right? I mean, it's just like straight up bloody nose as soon as you get there. So I, I think it's funny because- Is that a good sell? I don't know. <laughs> Too bloody? <laughs> I always laugh because every time we we talk to someone about design work or about, you know, some traps to dodge in designing, yeah. the solution always seems to be, well, just think about this as early as you possibly can and build it into right. the project, yeah, which yeah. which is true, but it's also very difficult. Yeah. Because like you were but saying- But you don't know which, what you don't know, right? You don't I, know what I, you I think don't one, know. Of the, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest- problem phrases in all of engineering is uh, how hard could it possibly be, right? I mean, like yeah. that is something that I have uttered umpteen times and it has bit me every, you know, every single time. And so it's like, yes, there is potentially, you know, you might have more to think about upfront if you're choosing a you know, platform like Goliath or using an RTOS like Zephyr, but man, do you get the benefit on the back end? And it's just like, you can't know but once you've gone through it and you have those battle scars, people who have gone through it and, and have those battle scars are like, Oh yeah, I've been there. Like that that is <laughs> I knew that. Well, I, I like your example of when you're designing something, especially as a hardware engineer, you, your head's down at your bench and you're you're just trying to get your thing to work. And if my boss came by and was like, Hey, have you thought about security on it? I'd look at him and be like, dude, I'm just trying to get it to work. No, LED's not blinking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So if there's a system that kind of takes care of that for you, yeah, that's a big thumbs up. I'm actually curious. So you're saying you're the hardware guy at Goliath, but Goliath mm -hmm. is in effect a hardware company, even though the product itself is software, right? I mean, it's supporting uh, hardware. Supporting hardware, but it's really, no, it is a cloud company. I mean, like that is, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's no more hardware than any other software company that's running on your computer. Well, I, yeah, I get yeah. that. But, but I guess what I'm saying is the inputs to Goliath come from hardware. They're not necessarily yes. selling the hardware like you mentioned, but it's all tied to hardware at the beginning. Yes, we all are intimately aware of hardware and we love it, but we're not building it as a product, right? That's not where the, yeah. There's no line item on our p &L. <laughs> <laughs> So this might be beyond what you know about the security side, Chris. So mm -hmm. so one of the, the big things I've been looking at is 
individual devices and bringing them up individually with their own key sets. Mean that like if one device got compromised, it's only that one device compared to like if you had one key spread out over many devices, which people might not realize. But like back in the day, like when Blu-ray got cracked, it was just like literally one key. Oh, I didn't know that. OK, that was way back in the day. Uh, yeah. What? Like oh seven ish. Anyways, so there was like they had basically one key was the way to decrypt Blu-ray. And so once that key got out in the world, Sony was like, well, more, yeah, more akin to like a physical key where it's like, everybody's like, oh, I know the shape now and I'll just unlock with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So the idea of, especially with IOT exploding, reducing what, like if a device, because this is the thing with hardware is people have physical access to it. So eventually they will get in. It's just, that's just how it is. And, uh, Go talk to Joe Grand if if if, if, yeah. if you he can, you know he, that guy can get into anything, and so mm-hmm. so it's reducing your your exposure if a device got compromised, and so one of the ways is is to uh, you know unique keys and that kind of stuff. So if one device does get compromised, it doesn't compromise the rest of everything. So you're you're interested in that, but are you asking me how to do that? No, I'm just <laughs> asking. Yeah, I'm asking if Goliath supports that kind of provisioning yeah that'd be certificates right so yeah. basically it's like you have a like a derived certificate off a, a root certificate i'm not i don't know any of the stuff on works under the hood so i'm just saying some words that i know but even instead of like the, so like for the blu-ray example right that would be like if everybody had the same username and password which also wouldn't really work because you wouldn't have individual records so it would be hard to replicate like that but in a certificate based system basically you have a certificate on the device. It's been derived from a root certificate. And then that public key of that root certificate, I believe, is then put onto the Goliath cloud. So you can say, oh, I actually know that this is cryptographically allowed. I'm just saying words now. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> basically, because they're all derived from a commonly known source, that's how you know it's it's supposed to be on the network. And so even if you have one of those certificates, you wouldn't be able to then go and generate a, a bunch of others. So I think all you're missing now, Chris, is for you to say blockchain and AI. No, I don't and, see those ones. <laughs> and then you got all of them. <laughs> Although our cloud lead had a good post the other day that said, uh, I accidentally mistyped API as AI, and I just raised $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Actually, totally random off topic. Where did the name Goliath come from? Uh, you may notice that in the middle of Goliath, there is IoT. That's why it's spelled different than the biblical Goliath, which has an A. And then I'm not sure the rest. <laughs> There's IoT in the middle. That's what I know. <laughs> I, like I should probably know that. Yes, I should know that. How long has uh, Goliath been around for? So it's been around almost four years. What year is it? It's 2024. Yeah, it's it's in its fourth year. So yes, in its fourth year. So I want to talk about a little bit on the Goliath backend. Sure. So you, it's able to monitor uh, devices and that kind of stuff. Is there any kind of processing that it's capable of, or how do you get data out of it to process it? Sure. Yeah. So like, for example, say you had, uh, where is it? Here it is. So here's like an air quality monitor. This is for Stephen Parker, but this is an air quality monitor, right? This is a NRF uh, 9160 underneath. It's got HVAC 
Click from Microelectronica, which is basically a CO2 sensor. It's got an air quality monitor sensor. It's got a BME 280, which is temperature, humidity, pressure, all that stuff. And so this thing is basically on a regularly scheduled, you know, basically on a programmable amount of time, in this case, 60 seconds. It's basically just piping data up to the cloud saying, here's some new readings. I just took some new readings. Then I'm going to go back to sleep. So that data then gets sent over to LightDB Stream, soon to be just be Goliath Stream. And then it's in the Goliath kind of backend, right? That's kind of the first thing. So it basically it traveled from this device in my hand, which people can't see. It talked to the local cell tower. From the local cell tower, it got routed to the Goliath co-app endpoint. And then it's been processed. In, it's actually been compressed as well, or it's been serialized rather. So then it gets deserialized, kind of expanded a little bit. It's then in plain text on the cloud and you can see it and... You can view it in console.goliath.io. That's basically our backend where that's our management console. So if I go and click on the device ID that represents this device, I go in there and I see like at Tuesday, January 30th at 9.01 p.m. Eastern, this reading was just sent up to the cloud and here it is. And then from within there, you can obviously view it, but then there's two ways that you can access and or export that data. One is output streams. And basically that's like an ecosystem of different endpoints. So you could send it to an Amazon simple queuing system, SQS, right? So that's basically piping into the AWS ecosystem for your software people to deal with. Same thing with Azure, same thing with Google Cloud, right? These are different than AWS IoT or Azure IoT because we kind of did all that front end stuff. And so now if it has to go in your data processing, backend, whatever, you're basically a limitless different places on the cloud, it can go from there. That's ex export, or sorry, that's output streams. What I usually do as a you know individual just kind of wanting to visualize this data is usually I go to Grafana and then from Grafana, which is like a charting thing in a, a web. It's kind of like UbiDots. Yeah, it's kind of like UbiDots. UbiDots is another example as well, right? So UbiDots is actually another output stream that we have, but you can also talk to the Goliath REST API. So say you wanted to just query or even get a, a WebSocket from a device basically getting notified that, hey, there's a new reading, that would be like a WebSocket. That then gets pushed to something like Grafana, and then you just see the new dot on the chart there. And that's something that I do very commonly where it's, I'm just piping data from a device in the field, and then I send it up to the cloud and then visualize it in different places. Now that's like device to cloud, right? There's other things like cloud, or sorry, uh, bi-directional, right? That would be like uh, LightDB state. And that's basically like having a database where both sides can write to it. And you can basically say, you know, this value has been updated by device or cloud or device or cloud and go back and forth there. There's also things like clouded device. So like a setting service. So I said, this thing goes every 60 seconds. Well, if I wanted to instead update it and say, you know, send me one every hour, right? You just send that, you set that on the Goliath console. You say if it, I want it to be on a device level, on like a group level or on my entire um, fleet level, you can go and send that sort of thing. So that's a clouded device. And then another really, really cool clouded device is something called RPC or remote procedure call. And so that's basically, like I've, wrote, I've written a bunch of different functions on you know, various pieces of hardware, and I just want to go trigger them. So I'm holding up the Thingy91 right now, which only Stephen and Parker could see, but this one has a beeper on it, and I wrote one called Play Song, and then I can trigger the Mario theme to be played from here, uh, right? Or I could trigger Funky Town, which is a different song I wrote, right? So basically just having, being able to send not only a trigger down to the device, but then also maybe some characteristics that I want to send with it. Another really useful one is called get network info, which basically says to the device, hey, just send me send me everything you got about your network. And it just sends it that 
one call, the one remote procedure call, and then everything that it knows about its network. So what tower it's talking to, what its signal level looks like, all of the, you know, basically everything about that then gets piped back to Goliath as well. And that's done on a dynamic basis. It's not like that's not sending it all the time. It's only done as a subroutine when it's told or asked to, to send back that data. So viewers can't see, but that PCB that Chris was just showing us was red. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no longer though, because when I recorded with Brendan, he said I should always change the silk screen when I go from Rev A to Rev B. And I was like, that is a darn good idea. <laughs> so I recorded with Brendan Duncombe, who was the Macrofabs. I, what's Brendan's title? I don't even know. Director of Customer Engineering. Okay, there we go. Yeah. He was on last week. He's also got a weird so, title. <laughs> yeah. He and I had recorded a video on the Goliath YouTube, which is linkable, viewable, whatever. And um, yeah, he, he shared that tidbit. I was like, that is a darn good idea. I should be doing that every time. So the next one's white. We do that uh, at work. If you see a green PCB, that is going into space. If it's any other color, it does not go into space. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what a great gut check. Makes it easy. All right. Unless you have color vision issues. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not sure though. Green, I think is pretty seeable. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it Purples is. Purples are tough, I think. Yeah. yeah. So you've done all the, uh, all the examples, right? For the, um, the reference designs, correct? Uh, not just me. No, no, not just me. But you're talking about like on projects.goliath.io? Yeah. 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 So I've done those. Uh, it's usually me, uh, my coworker, Mike Stish. And um, Chris Wilson is a contractor of ours. So like the three of us, and then oh, also Marco, our FAE. So the kind of the four of us are doing a lot of those on a regular basis. I'm scrolling through them, and these these are fantastic. It's great to just, I don't know what to do, read through this and be able to get to an end result in just one blog post. Yeah. I've referred to them in many different ways, but one of them is like business in a box. Like in theory... I think you could take something like these designs, which, you know, it is a box is, you know, it's a three inch by three inch by one and a half inch tall utility case with flanges on it. And like, in theory, you could deploy it in the field and make a business out of it, right? It's basically, if you just want to be like a company that is deploying hardware, but really selling data, uh, which is a lot of IoT companies in my experience, I think you're 80% there, right? That's another thing I talk about is like an 80% done design. Just, you need to productize it. You probably need to, you know, harden it for different environments and stuff like that. But the code's done, right? You have visualization. You have all the cloud backend stuff. This is stuff that people, you know, they think that that's the easy part, but then that becomes its own 18-month project, right? And then you have to productize the actual data piece. So if, like, if you actually want to sell, make an IoT business, that's where it starts to make sense. You're basically doing the MVP for a lot of people. That's right, yeah. That's a good way to say it, yeah. It's not the best hardware it's not the smallest <laughs> hardware right but like but it's like 80 percent there right and and like and then you you take something like this which has all the ideas in it you tweak out your sensors you know you figure out if the base processor is what you need if it's cost optimized however you need to be but then because it's in zephyr as well the real-time operating system it's very it, that part is abstracted to the hardware you retarget it the new hardware and you have kind of the same business logic in there and then you just start pumping data to the cloud right and that's really what a lot of companies want to do yeah, I, I was going to bring up Zephyr as terms of, you know, because Goliath runs on Zephyr, which basically allows you to... Not just Zephyr. Well, yeah, not just Zephyr, but Zephyr yeah. is targeted on a lot of different platforms out there. Yes. And uh, yes. I have actually have experience using Zephyr in really interesting environments like DEF CON. Yeah. So, oh, 
Nice. Yeah, it, it does work really well. But it's one of those, it's interesting what you brought up earlier, the whole like, you know, your hardware engineer and you you got your head down. Like thinking about a real-time operating system is probably like the least thing you want to deal with at that point. Yeah. But Zephyr really helps. Increasingly that. like, yeah, I mean, so I'm guessing you were probably like on a Nordic Bluetooth part, probably with the- Correct, yeah, it was actually not XOR yep. folks, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't have a choice, right? I mean, so like Nordic is Zephyr first. That's your, I mean, that is bringing a ton of people to the ecosystem. There's a lot of complaining about it until they dig in and they're like, wow, oh my gosh, all these things you get from it. So we just published a blog post today, which I know it sounds like kind of silly, but Chris, our contractor who's also working on reference designs, he wrote about this. We're on this board, the, sorry, the board that I'm holding up to Stephen and Parker. Um, basically, we have some regulators on there that are need to be on by default. And so in Zephyr, he wrote a blog post about how you do that before any of your code executes. So you just go and turn on all this hardware before anything processes because it needs to be on first. And that's like a Zephyr feature. But then the real thing is at the bottom of the post, he talks about the shell. And so like basically every subsystem in Zephyr, be it ADCs or sensors more broadly or I2C or SPY or all these different things that are in there, they all have shells. And then you can go you know, basically you connect it over serial and then you can enable a shell like this power, what's called regulator shell. And then you can go and just toggle stuff on and off. And when I think about like my work as a hardware engineer bringing this stuff up, yeah, you do have to like have the hardware interface layer, right? So like what's called device tree in Zephyr. Once you have that, then you have these testing tools all throughout. So like just doing I squared C scans and, you know, seeing what's connected. And, you know, if you're using the I squared C shell or in the case of this one, toggling, power regulators on and off and just being able to tweak that stuff instead of having some external tool you know i would have like maybe done it in arduino in the past to toggle the to scan the i squared c bus now i'm just it's just built right in and it's a tool that's ready to go it's killer yeah it's my experience with it is a lot like a couple years ago microchip and atmel and um silicon labs and stuff they kept coming up with these different like architectures that you would like bigger, chunkier libraries that you would run on your microcontroller to help you yeah. out with this kind of stuff. The halliest of all hells. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember what the, what the, the mic, I think that was the microchip one. Mm. I can't remember what it's called. Anyways, but Zephyr kind of does it a better way and it's cross-platform. But it's one of those, as a hardware engineer, you kind of just want to like, if you're not used to this kind of stuff, you you like, I just want to write on bare, like I want to write C yeah, and make right. it compile. I, I just want to see. Yeah, exactly. I want the I register like, it's going to hit. But or you a value to, into a register. Yeah, that's exactly right. But yeah. you can do that in Zephyr too. I want to touch every bit. Yeah, right. You can do that. Yeah. No, you can totally do it in Zephyr. Yeah. And you do need to dive down to levels of abstraction sometimes, but like, but then the problem is when you're at that, like that, bit twiddling level to start with and then you need to go talk to the internet and you need like an IP stack is like oh now I got to build it up from the bottom so it's basically like you're starting from like very very top down in Zephyr and yes you can dive all the way to the bottom if you want to there are some struggles there but then when you were like if if things are working to start with so say you're starting from a a reference design platform like Goliath has or even just like a development kit like the the DK boards from Nordic once you're starting from that point, you can do so much so fast. It's really nuts. Yeah, I just remember when the microchip one came out and it just would break everything. And you're like, <laughs> and you basically, you had to, it basically was like, you just had to go dig into and find the right registers and be like, okay, yeah. copy paste this into the top level. And then it would start working. And uh, <laughs> my, the experience I had with Zephyr was completely 180 of that. Yeah, but yeah. I came it's, into it with the wrong mentality, though. I was like, "Oh, this is going to suck," just like this other experience. 
Yeah. And then it ended up being like, oh, it actually isn't, <laughs> it wasn't the worst thing. It actually worked really well. Yeah. So Goliath does regular trainings um, for Zephyr and, you know, how, how to use it with Goliath. Goliath.io slash training dash sign up. That's like our regular thing. We got one coming up in February. That's uh, February 20 something. But basically all you have to do is buy Nordic DK and then you don't even have to install a tool chain. This is like absolute magic to me. So it's happening February 21st of this uh, 24. And yeah, so basically you have a development kit. You are using code spaces. So basically you click a link. Everything is pre-installed in a container in the cloud. And then it just shows up like VS Code in your browser. And then you compile from there and download it. It's literally magic to me. I mean, like it's unreal what's what's possible there. Because like Zephyr's, as much as I love it, it's... It is a horrendous beast to install the first time. I, I had a lot of trouble, and now it's like you don't have to deal with it. So that's, that's kind of interesting. They they put that whole experience into the cloud. Yeah, and actually, you can see that even if you don't want to come to training, you can just go to training.goliath.io, um, and that is all detailed there. So you can actually just go and click in, and like it's like thirty seconds to be like from like booting up a container. You need a GitHub account. Sorry, uh, but then uh, it boots up a container, and then you're just ready to compile, and then you can follow along with the tutorial. So it's really quite impressive. That's all my my teammates. It's not me. <laughs> and our CEO, Jonathan, he did all the container stuff. So um, you mentioned that you were uh, you had a video with uh, Brendan. Mm -hmm. So what was that whole talk about? Oh, it's been so long, Parker. Um, that was about you know basically taking hardware to production, right? So we were talking about Macrofab services, of course, and this board that I've been working on. But then just kind of like best practices for not just designing the board, but then thinking about like past that. So like Brendan's talking about things like testing once your board's kind of through through production, programming, end of line type stuff as well. Um, that's what I can remember right now. <laughs> Should probably pull that up, huh? <laughs> no, no worries. I've met Brendan once and I could tell he's really into testing. Yeah, yeah, he definitely. The number of time he said to put more test points on your board is, I think it was in the double digits. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting because... Um, Brendan goes both ways. So uh, on that test point thing is when you're spinning up for the first time and doing your first initial runs, yes, all the test points, but it's like, yeah, if you're in production, take them all off. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Cause Brendan had a uh, webinar today too, talking about physical security and PCBs. Ah, yes. That's the thing. I mean, if you have like four test points, then you're like, these are the SWD pins. <laughs> Come yeah, on exactly. in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing is, it's not really going to slow people down too much if they have access to your device. Yeah, you know. that's what I was talking about earlier. But here's the thing. like, So this is something I talked to um, Josh. Anyways, one of the guys in the security community. He's like, you know, you could always pipe something like a light sensor to your device, you know, and have like, have connectivity or have like sensing capabilities to know when your case has been breached, things like that. So there's a lot of interesting things you can do there. It's really just understanding how you expect your your users and your attackers are going to interact with your hardware. Mm -hmm. So on Goliath, so what's in the future then? What's the next project that you're going to do a follow along on? Yeah, so follow along, I guess I didn't explain what follow along hardware is. So I'm holding up a custom piece of hardware that y'all can't buy. <laughs> uh, I guess Parker could go and pluck it out of the, the production line right now, but please don't. Uh, it's supposed to be my house soon. And You just gave me permission. I'll drive on over there yeah, right now. Yeah, I know, now. right. They let me do whatever I want, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that is a piece of custom hardware that I've been working on and uh, producing through Macrofab, but it, you can't buy it, right? So if I'm showing an example with that, it's got this case, it's got like a custom 
front panel board and stuff like that. That's not that useful. But because it's Zephyr and because you can retarget other hardware, basically we say, here are the parts you can literally go buy off the shelf right now. So NRF9160DK, Arduino to Uno to click board, because all these dev boards still have Arduino headers on them, fine. But then there's an interface board to uh, microelectronic to click. Then there are a bunch of click headers that we implement there. We designed from the beginning having off the shelf hardware. So then it's basically there's a configuration file that changes between the custom Alidel board that I've designed and my, my team and I work on, and then this off-the-shelf hardware, and then you can just go and retarget it. And it's that's really important to us because, like you said, if you're trying to figure out an IoT project or if you already know one, right, you've found that, you yes, you need an air quality monitor, you want to show your boss something working like a day or two from now, like that's amazing to be able to do that without soldering wires everywhere, whatever. It's basically just taking this idea and then implementing it and showing the data, which is ultimately the product. That's one thing that I've come to accept, unfortunately, is IoT companies, the data is the product as much as I want the hardware to be the product. And so how do you get to that that product as fast as possible? Yeah, all it would take is the company credit card going to Mauser and yeah, and right. following along on the uh, Goliath blog for that. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So interestingly, what was the name of the board? The Aliadel? Yes, what, what is that? Aliadel is a platform. Okay. It is a medieval alchemical container. So basically it was like a, you know, alchemy was like a bunch of horse hockey, but, you know, so it was like all silliness, but I love like how they had names for all these different vessels and things like that. And so I knew I was working on a case that was going to contain magic. And so I was like, oh, yes, alchemy. <laughs> and then the newest board is called the, so the Alidel is kind of the platform and then the Elixir is the new board. Gotcha. So a lot of thematic um, alchemy things. Also, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember the game Alchemy? It was like a Flash game and it's been like, do you remember that game? Alchemy? Uh, not it is the bell. most addictive game. It's like you start with like four or five elements on like the side of the screen and then you like drag them into this play space and then you start dragging them on top of each other. And then, so it's like fire plus water equals steam, right? Now you have a new element to play with and steam plus dirt equals, I don't know, like lava. And you know, some of them are kind of like mental leaps. It is such an addictive game. <laughs> and it was like, I remembered it from like, I think it was like my college days when it first came out. And then I, f- I was searching for all these things and I found it when I was looking for the names. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> that was is, a it with the, is it the one with the triangles? The triangles. Um, this must not be it. I don't know. Alchemy game. Let's see. Alchemy Flash game. I got uh, littlealchemy.com. I think that's the one. Like, okay, yeah. This yeah, is, that's the, that's this is more in line with what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so much fun. It's so addictive. Be very careful. <laughs> 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 if I'm just talking and and Parker and Steven are, are not talking to us, the, the episode is because they've, they've Apparently, been, they Little got, they Alchemy 2 is out. Mm, there you go. More combinations. Right, I got to close that. I got to close that window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, I'm telling you, it's super addictive. Yeah. I started seeing the meter go up, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the dopamine is just squirting. Exactly. <laughs> Off the charts. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So um, what's next with that stuff? Um, so this platform has been closed so far, right? It's basically just been things that I've been working on and things we take to trade shows and stuff like that. Assuming RevB works, which would be my fault, Uh, If it does not, but assuming it works, we're going to actually be open sourcing that design and making that available. There's also a front panel for the case. So we have like a off the shelf case from Bud Boxes that we buy. It's like a little, it's called a Utila case or something like that. I basically carve out the back. um, So I have like 3D printed kind of uh, swappable plates in there. And then there, uh, sorry, 3D printed swappable 
walls effectively of this case. And then um, the front panel, instead of a plastic front panel that comes with it, I made a PCB front panel that uh, is actually an I2C uh, peripheral device. And so from Zephyr or ESP IDF and all the different platforms out there, basically you just send like an I2C message that says, hey, my temperature reading is 24 and then it shows up an e-paper screen. So it's it's all e-paper and nice and pretty. And yeah, it's, it's great. So that's nice for trade shows. Yeah, I guess I can go the opposite way. You can have like CapSense buttons and that kind of stuff. The, it also has that, yes. Oh, I, I, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. So I have to ask, because of the name Goliath 2. No, don't do this. What's the potential, <laughs> David? Ah, uh, you mean like what is our downfall? What is our weakness? Or what could be? Uh, this question, Parker. <laughs> uh, well, the name like Goliath, you have to ask that. Yeah, I mean, I had I had the same thought when I joined the company. I'm like, oh, that's going to be a headline someday. Um, oh, no. You're going to be asked this on a podcast one day. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I think the hard thing for any of this stuff is just the complex, any IoT system is just the layers of complexity, right? So like to go from, so like say a thermistor, which is like, you probably are not using that in a lot of designs, but it's, it's, a resist- it's basically a thermistor is just like a 10K resistor usually. And then you, tell what the resistance difference is, right? To go from that all the way to like saying what the temperature is that the thermistor is representing like on the cloud, there are so many steps in between. And like when I think about the amount of like cognitive and technological access that I I bask in every single day, it, it is kind of mind boggling, right? Like I'm using a cellular modem to transmit that temperature all the way up to the cloud in order to pass it over somewhere else. And it's like, oh, my bread's done or something like that, right? The the triviality that it enables. The problem is uh, it, there are lots of layers of complexity in there. And if people are, mm, you know, if you don't use a thing like Goliath, the, I think one of the complexities is that you then have to go and implement all that stuff yourself. I think one of the problematic things for Goliath at the beginning is that like Zephyr is non-trivial to learn. We help people learn it. We want people to learn it. We think, uh, you know, and, and other ecosystems that we support as well. We are here to educate and help people. But like, sometimes it's it's frustrating to the point where I, I'm sure that some people somewhere on the internet are looking at our stuff and they throw up their hands and say, this isn't for me. And I want to help get them through it. But like, that is a big risk because it's, it is different than tweaking register values, right? But the things that you get Along the way, the the treasures that you get in the alchemical world, because uh, I know you guys are still playing. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the things that you get along the way are really worth it, I think. And so some of it is like, just trust me, bro. But uh, some of it is also like, you know, it's just, I think it's uh, people who have the experience of, of having tried to go and build all that stuff themselves, they will see the things that are beneficial from it. Did I answer your question? I, oh, yeah. Or was that's I supposed perfect. to say David in there? No. <laughs> the no. answer is David Jones. That's the downfall. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I, I, think, I think you hit it on the head. I think in many ways you are the solution to mm. that situation. And I say that just because I have experienced companies like this where they just say, hey, we've got this magical project and here's our API documentation. Good luck. Have fun. Yeah. And there's some third-party guy who's like, guys, I cracked the code. Follow my instructions on how to get this done. And and being able to connect the dots, which in so many ways is what you are doing there, I think is the key to showing people <laughs> how this actually works. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. Uh, I was actually kind of surprised when I started at the company, I was actually a contractor to start with. But when I started, 
I remember there was like, I was like following along. I think it was like a readme or something like that. It was like someone's project readme because they were doing stuff. And then they're like, well, you read the docs, right? I'm like, oh, right. There's a doc site. Like, and like, but for software developers, like that is the first thing they click. They just go straight there. I'm like, data sheet, I'll go, I'll run towards a data sheet, right? I will run towards a, a step-by-step guide. And it's, so some of it is kind of the context that people come into, mm. you know, like what their expectations are. But it's kind of in all of the, it has to be in all of the above. It has to be a forum. It has to be a step-by-step guide. It has to be docs. It has to be videos on YouTube, right? I mean, like, that's a modern thing that I do is just like modern thing. <laughs> you know, YouTube, it's so modern, guys. <laughs> is it modern? <laughs> I'm like... Well, as always, uh, you know, we approach it from a hardware perspective. Yeah, right, right. Now you're going to tell me that Glad has an IRC channel that we have to go log <laughs> into. Yeah. yeah. Reach yeah. out to them on AIM. Yes, right. <laughs> is AIM still around? I'm sure it is. It's got to be. Yeah, uh, American Online is still um, making, I think, billions of dollars still. Oh, wow. Yeah. Still sending out CDs? Not for me, thanks. None for me. I was about to say, still sending <laughs> out CDs, everyone. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So um, before we wrap up, Chris, where can wh- where do people need to go? We mentioned Goliath and a lot of different websites, but what is, where yes, should people yes. go first? I mean, if you want to see kind of what it is, what we do, whatever, I would say Goliath.io. So it's G-O-L-I-O-T-H dot I-O. And that's, you know, just going to show you a rundown of all the, what the product is and kind of different industries we target with stuff like that. I would say our YouTube channel, which you could find from there as well. If you want to just kind of see stuff in action. Personally, I, I usually go there first because I just want to just show me. Don't tell me. Don't you know? send me docs or whatever. Just show me it working. I want to see it working once. And that's on our YouTube channel. Then our blog, blog.goliath.io. There are a lot of properties here. I'm going to list off. The project site that we've been talking about here, so that's follow along hardware and reference designs. That's projects.goliath.io. And training, it's training.goliath.io. That's where you can go and actually open up a, a browser and get into VS Code and try it out without having to have, I guess you don't even need the hardware, but you should have the hardware because blinking, blinking LEDs. It's like dopamine shots to my eyeballs, you know? <laughs> what if you opened that up what and if? there was a stream of one like sitting on your desk, Chris, and people can make that LED mm-hmm. blink in that VS Code. And then you can have ra- server racks of those. Uh, you wouldn't have the PSK and PSKID because we're so secure. So, <laughs> bingo. Good point. Thwarted, Parker. <laughs> yeah, find me on LinkedIn, on Mastodon. I don't know, lots of different places. So, thank you so much, Chris, for showing up on our podcast after, I mean, I want to say six years. Hundreds of episodes. It's, yeah. It must have been six years. I, the I last was, time you uh, were on the podcast, I twos? think you were on vacation somewhere in like the middle of nowhere. Does that sound like me? Or just came back? Yeah, that, okay, maybe that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, but it's been so long that it could have been, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So for those interested in learning more about Chris and Goliath, please visit goliath.io. That is G-O-L-I-O-T-H dot I-O. And there also will be links in our show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Circuit Break. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. And thank you so much, Chris Gamble. My pleasure. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. Tell your friends and coworkers about the Circuit Break podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic you want to discuss, let Stephen and I and the community know. Our community, where you can find personal projects, discussions about the podcast, 
engineering topics and news is located at form.macfab.com. Finally got that little shortener for y'all.